0: Welcome, everybody, to the latest, greatest episode of the network age. I am Bitch O'Ritson here, as always, with my handsome co hosts, Hapsel Rigner and Nilrun Mardux. Boys, how are you doing today?
1: Doing great, doing great down here in Buenos Aires,
2: and wonderful in rainy El Salvador.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. And uh, Montana going back to its normal schizophrenic weather. (laughs) But that is not why you tuned into this show. I'm sure you tuned in because we have an extra special guest today, Brian Crane, the CEO and co-founder of Chorus One. He is a technologist, an investor, an Urbit, big brain, and the host of Epicenter Podcast, the longest running crypto podcast out there. And it's... Really exciting to get a talk to him. There's, you know, almost no one around who's been in the space longer and talked to more people. And he just has such a wealth of information. I'm really excited to get a chance to chat with
1: him. Yeah. I mean, he runs a great podcast. Like I love Epicenter. He's also interviewed a lot of really great orbiters on it. Most recently, Tim Luck, um, our, you know, RIP co-host and <laughs> yeah i don't know brian's just you know he's been around for a long time but he's also like done a ton in crypto like he hasn't just like there, there's some people in crypto who have just been there and haven't done much and like brian's done a ton you know working so much with cosmos uh doing meetups for for bitcoin in berlin and now more recently starting to work for the orbit foundation you know doing hosting um through chorus 1 but also now joining the board of the orbit foundation so it's just fantastic to have someone of Brian's caliber involved in the Erbit um, ecosystem. And yeah, just pumped to be able to just yeah pick his brain about how to build Urbit and his experience um, from being around in crypto for so long.
0: Yeah, we're going to definitely spend a lot of time diving into Urbit and the intersection of Erbit and Web3. And I think we'll also talk about what he views as the path to wider crypto adoption. You know, he just talks to so many different people that I think he has a really Interesting perspective on what is going to get us, you know, to to a billion users. And I think we're also going to jump into some stuff that's especially interesting to, to you, No run about regulation and economics and, and what countries are creating a, a positive environment for running and operating a crypto business. For sure. So we'll, we'll, we'll dive into all that and, and perhaps most importantly, we'll solicit his advice on how to become a, a better podcast. So make sure you uh, stay tuned in, don't touch that dial, and we'll, we'll be right back with Brian Crane. Welcome back to the Network Age, and we are now joined by Brian Crane, the co-founder and CEO of Chorus One, and also Minwike Dablin on Urbit. So Brian, thank
2: you so much for joining us. We're really excited to, to have you here with us. Yeah, I really appreciate you guys inviting me. I've listened to a few episodes and really enjoyed it. And, you know, I have lots of respect for what, what a lot of you guys are doing. So excited to be here. Thank you. Yeah, it's, uh,
0: it's nice to have a, a fellow podcaster, a, a legend of the crypto podcast uh, space. So we'll certainly pick your brains about that later, how we can be better at our jobs like you are. But uh, before we get there, <laughs> would <laughs> love to just hear a little bit about how you got into both crypto and Urbit. You know, you have your, your hands in so many pots. You're an investor, a technologist, um, you know, a podcast host, as we said. So how did you uh, wind up in this this wacky, wacky world?
2: Yeah, so as a, I would say as a teenager, I was pretty interested in, you know, kind of libertarian ideas and economics. I studied economics afterwards. And then I became interested in tech as well and kind of wanted to do maybe something like startup related. And so I had kind of some attempts with that, but then, you know, I was working on things that just seemed boring and kind of meaningless (laughs) and didn't really inspire me. And then at some point in 2013, I discovered Bitcoin and read the Bitcoin white paper. And that was just immediately kind of brought everything together. So, you know, one... The uh, the political ideas around it really appealed to me. Uh, I loved the idea of having some kind of economic, financial system that's you know beyond the reach of nation nation states that could be much more free and innovative and unrestricted. And then, you know, it was also just I, I was, you know, immediately convinced like, oh, this is gonna be massive. So I also felt it would be great. Uh, opportunities to build companies and Mm. uh, you know it was intellectually interesting so yeah basically once i found out about it i was pretty much immediately uh, all in and uh, have been since then i guess it's almost 10 years now
0: yeah Um, you you've really been there since since the beginning you know 2013 is you know a whole different world of crypto at this point
2: Yeah, it was definitely early uh, at the time. It was also kind of, I didn't have much in terms of sort of skills uh, or experience. (laughs) I relate to that. (laughs) So So what did going
1: all in look like in 2013 from your perspective?
2: Yeah. So the first thing I did was I started a meetup group. So I was in Berlin Mm. at the time and I started the Bitcoin meetup group there. At the time there was, you know, there was some kind of social meetup group where people would go to this bar, but there was nothing where people would meet up to give talks. And so I started that group, it was called like the Bitcoin startups Berlin meetup group, but, you know, we pretty mm-hmm. much immediately started doing other stuff, you know, we started doing, you know, we did like Ethereum presentations in like January, 2014. And, you know, we, um, so I, I ran that for many years, you know, I think it was was one of one of the most active and largest meetup groups in Europe. And, um, so that was the first thing I started. And then I started writing this newsletter. So I write it, was writing kind of a weekly newsletter about, you know, what was going on in crypto. And then I pretty soon in December, 2013, started the Epicenter together with Sebastian Couture and, you know, started doing the podcast and you know, it was kind of things that you could just do, right. You didn't need to get hired mm. somewhere. You didn't, cause there wasn't a lot of jobs. And so those were kind of the, the things I spent. Most time in the beginning, it was a meetup group and um, podcast. And then 2014, I started helping, I helped a little bit with Ethereum. So with some of the kind of organizational stuff. So I helped Berlin was the, quite a
1: hub for Ethereum, right? For
2: yeah, exactly. Days. Exactly. Yeah. So we had like Gavin come over and he gave a talk uh, at, at the meetup I was running. And, yeah. you know, was then staying there and I helped set up the the kind of ETH, um, ETH, DEF, which was the kind of bull in Ethereum hub. Um,
1: and now was, you're quite on the technical side, right? With Chorus 1, like <laughs> you've kind of made the full transition from... You got those you know, skills you never newsletters. Had. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm still not particularly technical, you know. Like, I have done like half a Hoon School and, you know, like done a little <laughs> bit of... Uh, so um i I was always you know always like to kind of go deeper into stuff you know read white papers to you know epicenter as a podcast is is fairly technical right because we yeah and and so i you know i have like okay understanding of a lot of different stuff a lot of different technology but you know i'm not 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 super deep and i'm not you know i'm not very technical still although of course we have a lot of you know, we have a lot of engineers that correspond, so we do have a lot of very technical people. So I, I'm curious, uh, as someone who is also less technical
0: in a technical company, how do you relate to the to these projects that you're working on, where you have to interact with you know engineers and devs, and you're working on you know quite literally infrastructure. What what is your approach to sort of bridging that gap or making the the sorts of decisions you need to as a as a CEO of a you know a tech company?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm the CEO of course, my co-founder Meher, is the CTO. Now, Meher actually is also not that technical, like he's never worked as an engineer, although at, in the although he's super smart, learns very fast. So, he's always been the one who's like, you know, really spends a lot of time uh, you know, like reviewing uh technical architecture speaking with engineers. So he's, he so I think it's always been kind of fine, you know, that, that you know, we have enough people and you can talk about things and uh, make decisions. So I think it hasn't really been a big issue. It was, I think the biggest challenge was probably in the beginning, because in the beginning you had to hire an engineering team and that was kind of, that was not so easy, you know, because, and I think we made some mishires too early on, Mm. uh, that definitely set us back some while. Uh, But, you know, I think once you have, once you have a kind of good engineering team, um, I think it's okay. Like it hasn't been a huge challenge for us.
1: And can you walk us through what Chorus 1 does, what your focus is, um, and just kind of, yeah, how you how you ended up deciding to found Chorus 1?
2: Yeah, sure. So basically, maybe like a few more points. And So in uh, 2015, I started having my first job that was kind of, you know, for a proper startup. And mm. I worked for this company that was building, it was like the first company building like enterprise Ethereum applications. And they also um you know they they basically forked Ethereum and then they wanted to have something to replace proof of work with. And then that company became the first user of uh something called Tendermint. And Tendermint was basically the first kind of proof of stake design um that was developed by Jay Quan in twenty fourteen. And, you know, that company started using that in a kind of permissioned blockchain context. And so I was, uh, you know, I was pretty familiar with that, you know, I kind of understood Tenement and I was interested yeah. in proof of stake from early on. And then I joined, I became a chief operating officer of the company Tenement. Uh, the company Tenement, uh, which is also the company you know, that launched the Cosmos network and the kind of Cosmos mm. ecosystem. And so I was working on that in 2017 you know, kind of uh, pretty much at the start uh, of the thing, Uh, you know, help like organize the the token sale and kind of grow the organization that year. And uh, it was a really um, a lot of amazing people there that went on to do great things. And it was, uh, I think the vision of Cosmos was incredible and has really turned out, uh, to be right to a huge uh, extent um, and um, and then but the organizationally yeah so I was working at Tenement in 2017 and um organizationally however the it was a bit of a chaos and uh, the company ended up falling apart and splitting up into like people basically ended up starting a lot of different projects out of this and Mm -hmm. i think i was kind of the first one to leave because it was just hard to be productive in the environment and also uh, it was very clear that you know proof of stake was going to be the future you're going to have a lot lots of proof of stake networks at the time none of them had launched um but you know there was just a need for someone to go and build infrastructure and and actually actually operate all these networks so in the end of 2017 we decided we're going to start a company so my co-founder my hair and i and we're going to work on that and then we kind of yeah so doing that beginning of 2018 and we are still doing that today so we're i think running infrastructure for around 50 different proof of stake networks uh you know have at the moment around a billion in assets staked through through oh. our uh, infrastructure wow. <laughs> that's a big number yeah, it was like 5 billion if uh, i don't know a year ago or something you know in the last yeah. bull market and it will be uh, back it top. will be back yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah um yeah it's i mean it's, it's pretty cool uh, really enjoyable to work on it i think we we're like you know 50ish people in the company and um, run, you know, primarily proof of stake validators, but there's also a bunch of other stuff, you know, like chain link oracles, interoperability protocols, you know, a bunch of different types of kind of Web three infrastructure, uh, and uh, and have also been working, of course, on uh, on urban hosting and running Urbit infrastructure, mm-hmm. which is a more more recent part of the business.
0: Yeah, and so Chorus One, aside from being involved in in so many different types of crypto and Web three infrastructure, also has an investment arm and you know full disclosure chorus one has invested in in oak bar which pays multiple members of this podcasting team's salary um but i i'm curious sort of how Wait, you guys get paid <laughs> yeah sorry i shouldn't have <laughs> said i shouldn't have said that on air i, I don't uh, full disclosure yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but i i'm wondering maybe how you made the decision to pivot chorus one from being solely infrastructure to starting to make investments in this space and when you're investing what are the things that you look for for a promising project is it just returns or is there some sort of ethos or idea that that really gets you excited
2: yeah i mean so as a as an infrastructure you know provider and staking provider for blockchains you know, we would often be you know contacted by blockchains, or we would find blockchains. You know, when they're kind of early on in the testnet phase, before it's live, and then you know we start like kind of running infrastructure for that. And then of course some uh, some would be uh, you know raising funds too, and they would do some kind of investment rounds. And then it was very logical in a way to say, hey, as a company, uh, we start investing in some of these things, especially once we had um you know enough uh, some assets that allowed us to do that so we had i think the first investment we did was you know in like 2020 when we invested in Lido because we mm-hmm. were one of the one of the initial sort of validators to set that up and um and and i would say as a general theme a lot of investments have been in most investments have been in things that are um you know networks that we also run infrastructure for there's not a lot of things that we've invested in that are sort of you know completely independent of our business there have been a few Um, and yeah so definitely proof of stake networks have been a big thing Uh, some liquid staking related things you know a bunch of random stuff as well and and orbit too right more recently uh, i think we've made quite a few orbit investments uh, maybe like six or seven at this point Mm. And uh, And I expect that to to definitely continue increasing too.
1: And how did you first hear about Urbit? I mean, you interviewed Galen for Epicenter back in, I think, 2017. So even much earlier that I was involved with the project.
2: Yeah, I actually don't remember exactly how we heard about it, but somehow heard about it in 2017. And then, yeah, did a podcast with Galen, uh, which was really great. Really enjoyed the podcast. Uh, I did it together with Meher, my, co- my co-fo- co-host at uh, Epicenter, and also co-founder at Course One. Mm-hmm. And then we went to San Francisco a bunch of times in 2018, 19, and we would uh, often sort of visit the Tlawn office, and uh, you know, meet Galen there, and met a bunch of other people on the team. And yeah, just thought it just was a really cool thing. And um, also, both Maher and I invested. A, a bit and bought a bunch of stars in there was a sort of a fundraising round they did in I think 2018 so we were basically aware of it since then uh, I really liked the vision I thought it was very cool but it seemed to be I don't know just something a bit abstract and removed at the time mm-hmm. and then it was later in I think 2021 maybe around two years ago I think That, uh, you know, there was like Landscape and Tlon started having um, some kind of very early beta hosting product. So I think I was one of the first uh, beta hosting users of Tlon. Um, And, you know, once I started uh, actually using Landscape a bit and, you know, using groups a bit, I was like, okay, this is actually actually working decently well. (laughs) And then, yeah, then I felt like, I started to believe that this is going to happen, and mm. this vision is actually going to come to to be realized, and that it's just going to be absolutely massive. And so then I started, um, you know, I started trying to dive in and understand it better. Um, you know, I started uh, spending yeah a bunch of time on it. I, I hired a guy Matt Levan who's at the Urbit Foundation now uh, to be a sort of Urbit tutor for me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I did a bunch of calls with him, you know, once a week for a while.
1: Yeah, to, that's great. To
2: try to, yeah, absolutely. He was very helpful there. And uh, and then in yeah, in the summer of last year, basically decided to start uh, working on urban hosting.
1: Mm, so you thought, and like, how, how much has Course 1 invested into urban hosting? I mean... I've personally been using it through Tiller Tollbus, which has been great. Well, not myself, but giving out invites because I found it, I don't know, it's working really well. It's simplified the onboarding massively, but I'm curious, like what made you decide to take that leap to actually investing your own time, your company's resources into Urbit hosting?
2: Yeah, I mean, first of all, of course, it was the conviction that Urbit is gonna be uh, big. And then I started to think about yeah, I wanted to do something with it, right? I wanted to actually be engaged uh, and build something and be engaged as a company with it. And mm-hmm. so I was thinking about what to do. I think there was actually two things that I thought about. One was the problem of discovery and search. That felt like a big problem that would be very interesting to address. And, uh, you know, still think so. Uh, Portal, I think, is like very interesting in this regard, you know, because it's like very closely to what I was sort yeah, of thinking about we, as we well. we love Portal yeah yeah it's very cool very cool product and excited about the direction they're going in and uh, so that was one thing but then the uh, and the other thing was hosting and the reason why we ended up going with hosting i think there was a bunch of them one was that we already are kind of an infrastructure company you know we have a lot of knowledge and experience around infrastructure so i felt like we could like leverage that to some extent and um you I know, also just felt that hosting is a great, you know, if Urbit succeeds, you know that hosting is going to be significant, mm-hmm. like, you yes. know, it's absolutely necessary and uh, it's going to be a big market if Urbit has a lot of users to sort of, so I think from a business model perspective, from a product like product market fit perspective, it, I think it's less risky than a lot of things in Erbit because it's also sort of simple enough. Uh, at least on the surface, right? At least in terms of what you have to build on the product is pretty simple. Of course, the technology underneath is not that simple, and how yeah. to scale it and make it efficient is not simple. So I think it has a lot of it has a lot of great characteristics and it's just so crucial for a bit to succeed. so I I felt it was the best fit for us.
1: And how do you see the monetization of hosting? Like for example, there was a lot of kind of Twitter back and forth when Talon started giving out free hosting and free planets. How does course one view kind of the future of hosting? Um, is it selling planets? Is it just selling monthly subscriptions? How do you view it?
2: Yeah. So that's a great question. And I would say we don't have a great answer right now. I mean, at the moment we are hosting ships for free. Uh, you know, we giving out through kind of invites, you know, for example, working in book or, so, or some other ways, but, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we, we're, we're just hosting them for free. Um. And I do actually think that a kind of free, um, freemium model is probably the way to go, where you say there's a just free urbit hosting that you can use, you know, forever, forever free, kind of like Gmail. Yeah. Um, and then there will be other things that you charge people for. Other things might be, you know, maybe you'd say is usage based, where. Um, You know, once you use a certain amount of memory or, you know, a certain like, you know, if you're a heavy user, then maybe you start paying uh, or there could be other ways. Yeah, like Google Photos,
1: Um, for example, it's free up to a certain amount of data and then costs a monthly fee.
2: But... But right now, you know, right now, I think we're just focused on, you know, automation, onboarding, launching the brand properly, which we haven't done yet. We haven't really announced it yet. I mean, we've sort of announced it, like people know, <laughs> but like we haven't really announced it. So I think that's also to come. And then I think we just want to kind of scale our existing, you know, free hosting. And I, th- I think that's probably going to be the focus for, you know, all of this year. So I don't think we will have any kind of paid product thing until, you know, at least, you know, some point next year, I would expect. Do you want to announce it live on air, make history <laughs> here <laughs> on the network age? Yeah. I mean, we are working on Orbit hosting, right? So um, <laughs> it's happening. You said twice that, that Orbit is going to be big. You, you have this conviction that's going to be big, but what got you to that conviction? Yeah, um, that is a good question. I think one thing is a sort of sense that if you use, you know, crypto in the end is about having a deeper sense of, you know, ownership over your assets, over your kind of, especially digital assets. But if you, if you have, if you then use a sort of, you know, if I'm using like a Mac or an iPhone or I don't know, you know, some kind of operating system that you don't really, where you don't really know own the underlying computing platform. It just mm. feels kind of, I don't know, a little bit fragile, incomplete. And I think the idea of having a sort of like, you know, really from the operating system level, this the sense of like control of the user. It just feels very important, and I felt like that was something that was needed. Um... I, I also yeah, maybe no, another ahead. thing, yeah, another thing that I think today, where I see the biggest selling point of Urbit is on the level of the developer, and you know where you can build an application and where you can leverage a bunch of primitives, like okay, you have like identity, you have messaging, things like that are just existing, you can leverage them. And then, you know, you can build the application and because they're hosted on users' own planets, you know, you don't have to have an AWS account. You don't have to worry about the hosting. You don't have to have DevOps engineer. Um, You don't have to have the, also the kind of costs that come with it. You know, if you have more users, you have more hosting costs. No, like you don't Mm -hmm. have that. So I think it, makes it super, and and, you know, the other things like, okay, you don't have users data, so you don't have to worry about, you know, GDPR maybe and a whole bunch of other, you know, you don't have as much security concerns potentially. So I think it's going to be extremely attractive for a developer where you can basically build applications and scale applications at a much lower cost and with much more ease. And I think that's going to be super compelling once we get to the, um, you know, the point that this really works well. And um, and then I think the crypto-Urbit synergy is also going to be really, uh, really massive. Uh, it's It just seems like a better computing platform to sort of leverage crypto and build crypto on.
0: Yeah, I think you really hit on a lot of what we view as some of the most in, important parts about Urban and what you're saying about devs is really incredibly persuasive to me because all of the ideological arguments for Urbit in this sense of ownership, I think, are truly Im- important and will become only more important as we <laughs> move towards a a future that seems to be s- centralizing rapidly, especially with a lot of AI stuff, which we can maybe dive into later. But I think we've already found that ideology is not necessarily enough to convert the everyday user. A lot of people came to Urbit now. Um, because of the arguments about self-ownership and sovereignty, but it seems that there's been some sort of cap on, on the number of people that that can reach. But people will come over if it offers a, a web user experience that is persuasive. And I think the the way to get there probably is through building an environment that really rewards devs for building on Urbit as a platform and, and using oakbar and creating this synergy that you mentioned between crypto and Erbit, so obviously one of the biggest technical barriers to this user experience was hosting and and getting making Erbit easier to get on. I'm curious if you feel that there are other big technical barriers that still need to be surmounted in order to begin like mass adoption of Erbit, or is it simply a matter of Spreading the word, getting devs on, and, and continuing to build the like application ecosystem.
2: Yeah, um, I mean there are certainly things. I guess the um, um, the aspect of security is one, right? This sort of applications sandboxing that's like doesn't exist right now, right? Where basically an orbit application has access to like all your data on on the orbit. Uh, I think that's, you know, a huge issue and something that kind of prevents any kind of serious crypto application to run on there, I would say. And I think this is I mean, I know there's like work on that, but and this is gonna come. But I think even when it comes, it's probably gonna take a while to figure out okay, how can you make this thing really reasonably secure? Um, so I think security is a big one. I guess the whole new Mars thing with uh, you know, a bunch of the stuff they're working on, you know, performance and things like that, uh, that will be important. Um, yeah, but you guys probably know better uh, about some of the <laughs> most important technical bottlenecks that you have. But, I mean, my in, in terms of timeline, my expectation is, you know, it will probably take, you know, things like what Ukbar is doing to have actual, like, you know, ability to write, like, smart contract applications on Urbit, uh, I think is very crucial So I would say, I would expect that it will probably be at least another year until we actually at the point where, you know, Urbit is sort of like ready for proper adoption and, and like compelling consumer experiences on Urbit.
1: And where do you see things going in the next, I don't know, five years from now, we move forward, you mentioned being really bullish, like what do you see as that future five years out for Urbit or perhaps Urbit plus crypto, where do you see this
2: heading? yeah i um so maybe let me start with erbit um i think with erbit i would hope and expect that it becomes sort of the main place where people build um crypto applications on so you know today you build your uh your Dapp using some mix of you know JavaScript, maybe Ethereum smart contracts, a b- bunch of different stuff. So I think uh, we expect a lot of stuff to happen on Erbit uh, and to people just start, crypto users to start Erbit a lot. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the, I, I think social applications I-, I see as like probably being the unique thing that Erbit really does like super or could do super well.
1: Mm. Um, yeah, I've been uh, not- really bullish on programmable yeah. kind of social graph where you own your social yes. graph and you can like just easily have that interact with whatever app you want.
2: Absolutely. I also, I, I mean, my, my expectation is that's actually also what's going to first get traction on URBIT because, you know, I mentioned the security issues before. I, I would expect the security issues is going to take a while to resolve. Mm-hmm. But, you know, some sort of social applications don't necessarily uh, need that fully resolved right they can be less security sensitive and and I think they leverage you know even now you know you have things like rumors if you want to show like okay what's the like urban application that sort of demonstrates urban in to someone I think rumors is still probably one of the best ones there is um, and it's such a simple primitive thing but yeah. it kind of leverages that social aspect of Urbit well Uh, I think it's a little bit into
1: that topic of search that you talked about, about discovery, where it's sort of discovery is happening through your friend network to some extent.
0: Yes. Could you explain how Rumors works in case uh, any of our listeners don't use it?
2: Yeah, basically Rumors is like an application where uh, you just have this like feed of messages. And in this feed of messages, you don't see who wrote the message, but you know it was... Uh, Either one of your contacts, so there's an application Pals where you can add your contacts, so you know it was either one of your contacts or one of your contacts' contacts, so then you can have, uh, I don't know, I mean rumors, right, you could put some rumor out and say like, hey, I don't know, this company is bankrupt, for example, Oh, and so you know one of your uh, contacts' contacts. Exactly. Ooh, ooh. All right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's just a rumor. I don't. I, there's no. I have nothing to substantiate It's just a rumor. Is this
2: Tiller.
1: All right. We'll, we'll get to the bottom of this.
2: <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's a gimmick. It's not like something people would use regularly. I mean, I think that's the issue in general, right? There's actually none of the urban applications today are really something that you know a normal person would want to use, except direct messages and groups. Blog. Um, Blog is pretty solid. Blog, yeah, yeah. I think blog is 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 fine as well. Yeah, Oakbar just started think, blogging with it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's so its only purpose. Yeah, but the issue with blog is still, it's not, you know, it, it gives you the ability to write a blog, but you will just write mm-hmm. a blog. There's like a thousand ways you can write a blog, and it sure. it's not really leveraging urban in like a unique way. And so the why would somebody be interested in that? well someone who like believes in the future of Urbit and thinks it's really awesome and then like oh look you can already write a blog on it then you think like oh that's cool but somebody who's just you show them hey you can write a blog on it and they're like "Uh, yeah there's interesting
0: ideological reasons to use blog and there's something nice about being able to like serve it directly from your own ship and and this feeling of data ownership but i think you're right that rumors in its way demonstrates the sort of composability uh, that's exciting about urbit and the way that someone can write an application that leverages another application uh, permissionlessly without having i don't know to like tap into the like apis or something like that it, it shows a lot of the way that the the pieces of urbit can be stacked together like legos to make new Exciting for you know potentially useless monsters, but eventually something very cool.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Awesome. Well, I I think that this has you know been a really great roundup of of where Urban is now and where it's going. But we also wanted to pick your brain a little bit more generally about crypto, as as we said, you you've been in the space forever and and working on this podcast, and you you talk to people from all different parts of, of the Web3 space. So uh, we were curious sort of what you think is on people's minds right now. Like, you know, the crypto industry has is obviously a place that moves super rapidly. Where do you think that a lot of the energy of, of the space is going to be looking and focused in in the
2: next, you know, few years? Yeah, I would say... I mean, there's probably a bunch of different ways you can look at this or approaches to this question. I do think that the macro environment and sort of the relationship between crypto and the macro environment uh, is an important topic. I think stable coins and regulation all kind of like dive into this and so I you know I think we are at the point now where crypto is sort of like relevant actually mm. and um and, and I think that has a lot of different consequences. And I think that do you, you know, interacts. Yeah.
1: Do you say that because of the banking crisis or why is it relevant in particular today?
2: Well, so I, I guess a bunch of different things, right? So, I mean, first of all, you know, what we're seeing at this point is that there's really uh, a relationship between the crypto markets and the kind of macro environment, you know, where you had uh, you know, QE money printing, you know, assets go up, more liquidity, you know, crypto assets yep. is almost like a leverage thing on that. And then if it's the opposite direction, interest rates go up, monetary tightening, you know, then crypto again is like disproportionately affected. So I think that's like one thing. And then I think the other thing we are we saw with the Silicon Valley Bank is that you know, a bunch of stuff. I mean, first of all, this just the obvious thing for people in the crypto world is that well, in the fractional reserve system, a bank doesn't actually have enough assets for all of the people who like have like deposits with the bank. So if they're going to yeah. try to take their money out, then well, uh, there's not enough for everyone. So now, uh, and then if, if you, if that's actually becomes a concern for people. I said like, oh, maybe my money in the bank is not that safe. Then where would you go? I mean, crypto is one of the obvious places to go. Maybe you could go to gold and some other places, but I think crypto is like very compelling. Um,
1: Yeah, there is this quite interesting relationship, right? Where you mentioned um, Silicon Valley Bank, but there's also, I saw a meme recently where you know it's it's Bitcoin's price back in the fall, and it's before Silicon Valley Bank, it's before Silvergate goes under, and so all the like the crypto banks go under, but then the Fed eases monetary policy a bit, and Bitcoin still doubles, even though things that are particular to the crypto economy suffered in that period. So it's it is quite interesting to kind of support, yeah, your your kind of claim that it's it's mainly about liquidity and kind of QE.
2: Yeah. Yeah um now of course the um, you know the the central banks and the sort of the financial system has to prevent this at at any cost right i think the <laughs> the trust in the financial system is like the most important to, so i think the kind of action where they say like hey look we basically bail out everybody is you know the expected thing and i think that's going to that's going gonna conti- to like i'm not in like biology's camp of like you know bitcoin's gonna go to the moon uh, and he's, he's running practicing. out of time to win his bet yeah it's uh it's not looking super likely yeah i think it's going to happen it's just going to happen in like i don't know 10 years or something i think it's going to take a whole long time um one thing i've been thinking a little bit about though is me i mean why why isn't it not going to happen in You know, why could the Fed just say, "Hey, we're gonna guarantee the deposits and everything is fine"? I think it's because the U.S. dollar is so strong still, and the Fed just has the ability to print that money and people buy it. But I wonder if, you know, in other currencies, in other countries where maybe you have a weaker currency, a weaker central bank, you know, this is a bigger risk. And maybe if we could actually see the sort of collapse of um you know banking systems in in other countries and then a sort of flight to crypto mm. uh,
1: i mean i arrived in buenos aires a few days ago and just yeah the situation is very hyperinflationy and people are i'd say the young people are moving into crypto to protect themselves and then the older people just have offshore dollar bank accounts in like uruguay and elsewhere so from yeah. a currency perspective it's mostly irrelevant like the pesos not really the currency anymore what yeah, do people exactly.
0: what are people using on the day-to-day? Like what do you Are you not? what are you buying stuff with in stores?
1: Um, you buy stuff with stores, but you keep like a tiny you keep like a month's salary in your bank account Everything else is in dollars is how people live So it's only being used as like a means of payment and then everything from like apartments to cars are priced in dollars um, people's life savings are in dollars and you know it's definitely the case here, and I can kind of observe it more closely. But I'm when I've heard, the same thing has happened to a, a lot of the world. You know, like Lebanon, Venezuela, a bunch of countries at this point.
0: There's no one hiding gold under their bed? That's the Montana way. <laughs> you know. You that, yeah, you're that's more American. Gold under the bed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, no. I mean, you know, your purchasing power actually holds if you hold it in dollars. So mm-hmm. you know, it's not like the American boomer who wants like guns and gold. It's a pretty different yeah. emphasis abroad. It's mostly about dollars.
0: And Brian, I mean you you mentioned stable coins earlier. Do you think that it's more likely that like some uh you know, economies that are on thin ice so to speak, are they are they more likely to switch to something like Bitcoin, which obviously is the the most widespread and has the most name recognition or is are stable coins going to become a like a daily part of people's life in uh, second world countries?
2: Yeah, so I, I feel like stable coins is probably going to end up one of the most important things. I mean, so I the thing is stable coins. So right? if you want to like exit, let's say you have doubts in the stability of your financial system and mm-hmm. maybe in the in the banking system, then. Actually going to something like a stablecoin is super attractive, right? Because you don't have to volatility, you know, you have proper like Most ownership of, the time. of it. Can yeah, like let's say it's like USDC or something. Now, what the, the problem, of course, is that because those uh centralized stable coins at least are backed by US dollars in a bank account, uh the banks are subject to you know regulatory pressure, confiscation, all of those things that these uh, don't seem very resilient, and I think it seems very possible that they can be basically shut down. And so I would expect that, uh, I mean, if if they really become a threat to the fiat financial system, um, that they will be shut down. Um, and and you know it's interesting that there was this application recently, right, for a sort of full reserve bank where you know they don't do any fractional stuff in the u.s mm, and then that was right. rejected i mean why was it rejected i'm not sure but like i think one reason i saw mentioned was like what's it's a threat to the banking system mm-hmm. and i was like well what are stable coins they are full i mean they are basically full reserve banks in a way and um, so i would expect that uh, especially at the point when um, stable coins become even larger that you know, you're going to have like the US regulators basically shut down USDC and USDT. And uh, mm. of course, that's like super bad for crypto. I think that's the biggest threat in a way, right? If if Tether and USDC are shut down, then really, really bad. Um,
1: it's interesting like how you would shut them down because, you know, the dollar is the reserve currency. Um, putting capital controls on it would be tricky. And so you kind of have like this, I don't know, weird game theory situation where, if it is popular to do a fully reserved bank that then issues a stable coin, like what prevents Panama, France, the UK, or like all these other countries from kind of just using their dollar holdings to create a stable coin that's somewhat hard for the US to shut down without capital controls, you know?
2: I don't think that's going to be hard. I mean, USDC is going to be trivial, right? Because it's basically fully US-based. And mm, then yeah. USDT, in the end, they need to have like US bank accounts or banking services. And if, if you basically say, hey, any bank that deals with this thing is basically mm. frozen out of the US dollar banking system, then, I mean, they have to... Um, they have to basically uh, debank it. And uh, okay. I, I don't think it's... I don't think it will be hard to shut down even Tether. Um, I mean, for, for now,
0: we're still so limited by the need for off-ramps, right? Like, none of these currencies really reach their full potential until people start accepting them for for goods and and services if you can't pay your mortgage in in stable coins you need to be able to get it into a bank and get that into the the hands of someone else so there really is at least i don't know i i do believe that there is some havoc that the the u.s government could could reach and, and really slow things down if they if they wanted to
2: yeah. I mean that's why you know I think still of course you know terra in the end and um um collapsed and you know it wasn't a sound system but I think the whole idea of having a a, a decentralized stable coin that actually scales uh it, it is it is the biggest thing in crypto I think if somebody could like Figure this one out. It is such a huge, huge, massive thing. And, you know, I'm Maker, unfortunately, if they're like half of USDC in there, I mean, it's really not that. Um, Yeah, there is just so much
1: demand for a stable kind of unit of account in crypto. Yes. For trading, for savings, yeah.
2: So, I mean... Even as a Core 1, right? Like, when you think of, like, investments we make, I mean, there's almost... 90% 90% of it is in USDC, right? So I think mm-hmm. a lot of like crypto-to-crypto B2B payments is like, you know, stablecoin-based. Yeah. So when you when you
0: talk about like potential regulation that might be coming down the pipeline, do you think, what kind of shape do you think that takes? Do you think it's, a, you know, simple blanket bans? We don't want any sort of stablecoins, things like this. Or do you think that the U.S., tries to have a uh, a little bit of a lighter touch to mold the crypto market to to match something that they desire more cuz we we talked about this on some early episodes of the podcast right the the US government has a history of of knowing how to how to take care of the goose that is laying the golden egg and in some ways it would seem antithetical to the the way that US has operated historically to move away from something that can make so much money but maybe they actually just feel it is such a threat to their the u.s dollar's dominance that they're they're willing to shoot themselves in the foot a little bit
2: yeah i i do think that's one thing right that especially the largest uh you know the largest economies with the biggest currencies have uh, a lot to lose so i think that's one thing I guess another thing, I mean, if you look at the U.S., it seems to be a kind of, you know, it's not like a uniform thing, right? Like you have a whole bunch of politicians that are actually pretty crypto-friendly and, you know, they want to support mm-hmm. it. And then you have, of course, like some regulators like the SEC who are like ultra against crypto trying, you know, basically try to do whatever they can to sort of put like roadblocks in the way. Uh, I mean, the CFTC thing too with this Binance, uh you know, going after Binance is a pretty, um, you know, pretty severe move, I think. That's... Uh, yeah, the you know, biggest you exchange
1: of... by far. And it's not even, you know, well, allegedly is not trying to work with Americans.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think there's maybe a question with Binance. I mean, it, it's pretty obvious that Binance was, uh, you know, taking the path of, let's move fast here, you know, uh, and do what we can to scale quickly and then sort out the rest afterwards. So I, I think I still have an, a big question for me with this whole thing is, um, you know, was this really just Binance being in like, you know, 2019 and 18 when they got started being kind of like lax with some of these controls or is it something they're like, you know, still actively doing today? Um, I think if they were still actively doing today then, okay, I can kind of understand it. But if they kind of, you know, did that in the beginning and now they actually have, you know, uh, they're doing what they're saying mm-hmm. in that they're kind of blocking US customers, then I think it's really uh, hard to characterize it as, as like just a politically motivated thing where they're trying to... Um, you know, yeah, sh-
1: they they did shut down my Binance account, so they are, they are definitely shutting <laughs> down some Americans' accounts. You want to so, start a yeah. GoFundMe? <sighs> yeah, it sucks. <laughs> Especially. Yeah, it just really sucks. Um, so Brian, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you got involved in 2013. That was a very di- different regulatory era. You were in Berlin for a while. Where do you think, where is developing as good from a regulatory perspective? Where actually wants crypto? Is it Dubai, El Salvador, Are there places in Europe?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, With course, one, for example, we're in Switzerland and uh, also with uh, Cosmos. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm still on the board of the Interchain Foundation, kind of Cosmos Foundation, which is also mm. in Switzerland. So, in, and if we, of course, there's a lot of crypto stuff in Switzerland. I mean, we could yeah. even pay our corporate tax. I mean, we just paid our corporate taxes, you know, you could pay it in uh, in ETH. Uh, yeah, that's so, pretty awesome. Wow. Yeah, so I would say Switzerland is, is like uh, still a good place. Um I think, I mean, I live in Portugal now. Portugal, at least from a sort of personal crypto tax perspective, is like very friendly. Um, It's probably not the best place to set up like crypto company or foundations, but like, you know, a lot of individual crypto people have moved here. Um, And I think there's others. Yeah, like UAE seems to be, you know, embracing it. And I think just sort of politically the way UAE works, I'm pretty bullish that they're yeah. gonna they're gonna you know recognize this opportunity and they're gonna really like leverage it and I think they're probably also in a pretty good position to withstand pressure from you know EU and US and stuff so I'm I'm definitely bullish UAE um, El Salvador you know is there for the Arabic conference and uh, oh yeah yeah it's a good time yeah so <laughs> I think El Salvador looks you know of course it's like a much smaller like uh, place but I, I think that's in the end we are gonna have smaller countries that you know have like less to lose that are gonna recognize this as an opportunity and, and I think it's cool that we have a place like El Salvador that really you know tries to be at the forefront here.
1: Yeah, they are very, very receptive at a minimum. So they're they're trying to kind of do the best they can to grow a crypto economy there. Obviously, as you mentioned, you know, it's smaller. It doesn't have like the billions of dollars or even trillion that like the United Arab Emirates has to build Dubai. So it's, it is sort of fascinating to see how Latin America can kind of move in that direction. But yeah, overall, I'm kind of just sort of curious, honestly, how the US moves, you know, as you mentioned, it is a fragmented society, there are different political groups and interests. It has, overall, the Biden administration has been sort of surprisingly anti crypto. And I'm just kind of curious, like, if that continues, if they accelerate it, it, it seems to be getting worse. Um, but it seems like a lot of Americans are still waiting to kind of see how that plays out before, you know, offshoring their crypto companies.
2: I mean, I think the the challenge with the U.S. is also, I guess it's different things. So I don't think there's like a political aspect where it seems to be that, you know, crypto is not very popular and, you know, a lot lot of, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that much that Biden has been like very anti crypto anti-crypto and uh so i I think that's um that's one thing but then another thing seems to be just the way that regulation works in the u.s where you basically have these different regulators and they don't really seem to talk with each other much and they all kind Mm. of do their own thing and then you have this new nebulous thing and then and then everyone can be like well, it doesn't really fit into the rules. So let's just try to apply our rules onto it in some way. Yeah. And then, like, people are so confused. Now, is this a commodity or security? Do you have to go to SEC or, or, you know, is a banking regulator <laughs> or CFTC or like, and, and I think that is something that's pretty, like, even in Europe, for example, right? Europe is a, is a more, it's not like, wouldn't say it's like super crypto friendly overall, but, yeah you ha- you tend to have a lot more certainty and you tend to have much more because there's maybe more centralization around the regulation you know they will say like okay this is the you know this is what a security is and then if it's not in this list it's not security right and you can kind of rely on that and you have some certainty and i think that is seems to be like a structural issue in the US that's just ingrained with how all these regulators work and that, i imagine that's going to be pretty difficult to address maybe that would require like you know Congress to, you know, agree on some general new regulatory framework, right. and classification, maybe new regulator, and then, I mean, that, how is that going to happen? Given mm. the dysfunctional unlikely. political yeah. environment, given that probably the other regulators would be like, "Hey, no, this is now us," and like, "Don't cut us out here." And I, I think that's really unlikely to happen anytime soon. So I'm, I would say I'm fairly bearish. Um, maybe the best hope would be that, you know, there's like a Republican administration and they just sort of don't care and don't do much. Um, I I don't think they would introduce like, you know, positive crypto regulation. They may just not be as like, um, aggressive in trying to enforce what, uh, you know, I don't know if it's exactly true, but, you know, this kind of choke point thing people are saying where basically reg- the kind of administration is actively trying to disrupt crypto. Awesome. So what, one question I had for
0: you, Brian, also, we we talked about this a little bit with Erbit, but I'm curious what you think is, is the time horizon for a large-scale crypto adoption. And, you know, it seems like you believe that this is inevitable, but what are the things that are going to take us there? Is it, are there still technical barriers? You know, a lot is being solved with scaling right now, which was the boogeyman for a long time. Is it user experience and like the applications that can be delivered? What is standing in the way of crypto being something that the average person is u- using on a daily basis?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we've made... The, there was a lot of stuff that was really sort of on the, in the category of, you know, this is like a big problem that we need to address and, you know, it's hard to address and, you know, how are we going to do it and it needs a lot of innovation. I think scaling is of course at the very forefront of that. And, and I think there's other ones like interoperability is another one like that. Um, but now I think we're at a different stage right now, I think. It's a sort of phase of, uh, you call it kind of like maturation uh, of the infrastructure. And I think there's a bunch of uh, things I would put in this category. I think scaling is definitely one of them where, you know, we're at the point where actually, you know, blocks aren't full in general, but there is kind of capacity. And, you know, of course, there's more work to do, you know, layer two isn't there yet. And there's a, there, there is more work to do, but we're like we're pretty close, like we're getting there. Uh, I think interoperability is a similar thing. You know, we have like IBC and the Cosmos ecosystem is working really well. You know, you have other things like Axelar, Wormhole, like other interoperability protocols that are, you know, also um, getting there. Uh, so I think interoperability is something that's getting uh, resolved in a pretty good way. And I think in, you know, two years, it's going to look, a year, two years, it's actually going to look really good. Uh, And then I think another one is like institutional adoption. So, you know, that you can have like good custodians where you can easily hold your assets, stake them, participate in governance. Uh, That was a big barrier for a long time. And I think, again, this is getting addressed and resolved. So I think we still have all of these kind of infrastructure type things that are actually on a really good path and where we're probably going to be there in, you know, a year and a half, two years. It's going to be in a really good place um definitely user experience is still not great for a lot of stuff so I think there's a lot of work to be done there and then I think we just need to have applications that people really want to use and um and there are things right I think you know we saw NFTs there was a lot of things that really got kind of traction but um yeah I think there's we need more things there maybe that are like just cool and get people really on board. Yeah. I uh... mean,
0: in you, you know, on your podcast, you talk to so many different people. Like, do you think that any of them had, have offered a vision for like, what are the, the applications specifically that are going to drive people to, to crypto? I, you know, I tend to come back to games as something that could really be a sort of, um, Gateway to crypto for a, for a lot of people, but what what types of experiences do you think that crypto applications are, are going to be able to offer that might appeal to you know your your average person?
2: Yeah, I think gaming. Um, now, I'm not a big gaming expert, uh, but I I do I am bullish on that. Um, I also think that you know in the end, what crypto is really powerful for is it's, it's a different way of organizing people. And you can organize, you know, as a collective, do something together and it can be just super powerful. So I think dolls are, um, you know, are going to be massive. And, uh, you know, dolls has, uh, and they can replace all kinds of organizational functions, right? Can it replace a corporation or maybe some sort of club or, you know, some kind of political organization. So I think there are like loads of different ones. And I think those are, you know, like it's, it's also something right. It it has to like mature for a whole while and it takes a while, but, and I, and I think Urbit can actually play a very big part here where if you, if you combine this sort of identity thing that you have in Urbit, you combine the messaging groups type of functionalities with some of this smart contract logic asset management that you have in uh in DAS today i think you can get to something like super compelling and powerful so i i i'm i'm very bullish on DAOs, um and maybe ai too you know maybe you mentioned ai earlier i think some sort of decentralized approaches to ai could could end up being i, I think are extremely needed and, yeah you know yeah.
1: Yeah. For example, yes. when you mentioned if you don't own the device, if you don't own the data, it doesn't, it kind of feels, I don't know, like you're building on sort of a house, you're building your house on a foundation of sand. I kind of feel that way with AI. It's like if I don't own the data that's feeding, that's at least optimizing the model, if I don't own, I guess I also need to own the device where the model is running as well. So maybe I need to like upgrade my, you app need to or. own a lot. yeah i probably need to get like an m2 macbook unfortunately um but that it seems like that is kind of where things are heading like we have these very powerful ais but i I don't really like when it's running on someone else's device um and and i'm just kind of like giving all my data over it seems like i need to kind of like get full control of that entire ai stack
2: yeah i I think there's like different so that makes total sense i I think there will be different reasons why you want to sort of um, you know decentralized ai i think one would be even just to have an ai model that's owned and trained in a decentralized way mm. and i think that that is also something that you know now you see all you see kind of ai responses being kind of you know biased filtered in some way you know trying to suppress you from asking things that are kind of considered uh, inappropriate things like that uh so i think that the kind of politicization of ai um seems like uh seems like an issue or seems like something that at least a, a lot of people would be you know I think they did that the US for example, leverages that open AI is like a US company and maybe tries to like get the data that people have in there mm-hmm. or like suppress certain mm-hmm. type. It seems like likely to me. So I think it's sort of you know neutral AI that uh, you know is collectively owned and trained and stuff uh, and maybe also one where you don't need like a central company. To put up like you know hundreds of millions in funding, but you could have you know lots of people contribute their computing resources to training the model and improving them, and I think that could be really cool. Um, yeah, we're seeing
1: some of that with Llama. I- I'm kind of curious. I mean, it seems like the EU is coming down pretty hard against AI, so you might need it to be decentralized just to have access to it without using a VPN.
2: Yeah, right. And and then-, then there's the other thing. The other thing that kind of ties into what you said, right? Which, yeah, I guess I think it was Italy, right? That basically said, "Hey, no, the uh, OpenAI is not uh, allowed because of this issue that you basically said before, right? Where this like this one company is going to have complete control over all this data, and I think that's Mm -hmm. obviously a big concern now. the The idea of like banning it is probably a bad idea because for a lot of them, it's still going to be okay. I rather but you have this horrible trade-off, right? You can say like, "Oh, either I use this cool new technology, but I have to give up all this data to this company. No idea what they're going to do with it," uh, or I can just like not use it and keep my data. So it's it's a really terrible trade-off. And well, I, yeah, yeah.
0: We talked about on um uh our episode with Jake Bruckman uh, a few episodes ago about this is potentially the a perfect place for Urbit to really stake out some territory, right? Like if you can. You know <clears throat> we're a long way away from something like this but you can imagine a personal ai assistant that runs only on your urbit that other people don't have access to that's trained on your data and can offer s- results specific to you without compromising your security and privacy it seems like that's you know an yeah. eventuality that is an obvious use case for something like urbit that allows it to silo data like that
2: yeah for sure i think that would be really really amazing um, yeah, I, 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 I want that for sure. <laughs> yeah. Hey, if you're, if you're
0: listening and you've been thinking, you know, ah, maybe I should make it Urbit it personally, I think or not do it. We'll all, we'll all support you. We're, we're looking for it here. <laughs> so Brian, you were also recently elected to the Urbit Foundation board. So I was wondering what made you interested in, in serving in that role and what kind of work is is the urbit foundation doing right now that you think is important what role and what role does the board play in it
2: yeah so i mean first of all the urbit foundation is kind of like a very cool interesting body right because in urbit you have the senate and the senate basically consists of everyone who holds an urbit galaxy and then mm. i think when when clone was set up and when kind of the address space basically that the, the kind of fundamental assets of urbit were created you know, they basically said, okay, a whole bunch are gonna be assigned to this Urbit Foundation, which would be some sort of body that would deploy those assets to develop Urbit. And the foundation then is, is a is an organization, right? It's kind of a legally incorporated Cayman Island organization, but it's actually controlled by the Senate. So it's by controlled by all of them who hold this NFT, you know, that represents an Urbit Galaxy. So I think this is like very cool, it's very unique. I think, uh, you know, that generally is not how crypto foundations work. Generally, the crypto foundations are sort of like separate from the on-chain thing. They're not really accountable to the token holders or the holders of the digital asset. So I think that's very unique and it's like super cool. Um, Yeah, so, and of course, since I'm, you know, sort of part of the Senate and like, you know, really interested in URBIT and, you know, we've been investing in URBIT, building URBIT business. Uh, and you know, know all these people, so it was kind of like asked if I wanted to join the Erbit Foundation board together with a bit more Fasswine and and Balci Srinivasan, and uh, yeah, and, and, and I mean, the Erbit Foundation, the main thing the Erbit Foundation does is, uh, is core development, right? So the core development from Clon has moved over to Erbit Foundation, mm-hmm. uh, Ted Blackman, a bunch of other people have moved over there, and so you know, it's really trying to the mission of the Erbit Foundation is to bring URBIT to um, you know technical maturity. So there's a zero Kelvin thing. So that really, basically the goal is to remove all the technical hurdles that kind of stand in the way between you know URBIT getting ma- mainstream adoption and being ready for mainstream adoption.
0: Could you explain zero Kelvin real quick? Because that's yeah. you know really interesting. I hadn't heard about it before.
2: Yeah, I mean, zero ke- You know, URBIT has this bizarre uh, versioning system, at least for the core software stack, where... You know, normal software, you increment the version. So you go from like, I don't know, 0.8 to 0.9. You go to 1.0, okay, stable release. And maybe 2.0 would be like a breaking change again. So you do this incremental uh, versioning, which you, you can kind of go up forever. Uh, and of course, with Urbit, the idea was to create a computer that would sort of like last forever. And where you would have a situation where you could run a program, a program could run today on Urbit. And if you took it out bit, like 50 years later, it would still run. The same program would still run. But to do that, you really need to get to the point where there's no breaking changes, right? Where the. Um, so, so, yeah, the same, same software will still run. And so what they did was that they said, okay, the, the version system on, on all the core software, it goes, it, it decrements. So it will, it will start at like, uh, what's the current 270 something. Uh, somewhere up there and then with each new version you go down so you go down like you know and, and when you're at zero you cannot change it anymore so the goal is really to get to that state where Orbit is not changing anymore on the core software level and of course that would also mean that um, the idea of Orbit is also that it becomes this zero maintenance thing right where you basically your Orbit just runs so you don't have to mm-hmm. do much it's not there yet, but so you know that that's also kind of one of the things that you know this zero kelvin would would bring us. What, so what version yeah, are we on now? Yeah. There, I think it depends on the it depends on like the different parts. I think for knock um, it's on four, and then who needs much higher, like hundred ish something. Ah. And so I think the different you know different parts of the stack have their own yeah, their exactly. own version that they're on exactly.
1: Yeah, and so do you have a particular, I don't know, vision that you want to see for the Urbit Foundation, or do you think everything's just kind of going well and you just want to kind of see that continue? Is there anything in particular you're looking to change now that you're a board member?
2: Yeah, I mean, first of all, this is all very new, right? So we've had like one meeting so far. So I think it <laughs> definitely needs some, some time to kind of like understand it. I, I think in general, it's like the the main goal is pretty straightforward. There's this Erbit Foundation roadmap that has been published too that's like really great, right? And it shows sort of what are the things that need to be done. And I think just to like build that stuff and, you know, try to do it fast and do it well, I think that's definitely, you know, the number one priority, the most important thing. And I think that's, you know, last year, the Erbit Foundation was maybe trying to do a bit more also around like user acquisition, you know, marketing, I think those things have been deprioritized, and I think that makes a lot of sense because you know we have a whole bunch of different Arabic companies. They can do that, right? Like uh, we can do that. Other Tlant can do that. You know, Ukbar can do that. Uh, people building portal can do that. People building applications on urban can do that. But when it comes to you know making sure that the core uh, technology stack is really ready for the mainstream growth, I think that's, you know, that's really the number one priority and the main thing that the foundation needs to achieve and, and hopefully do so soon. I think the key thing here is also that uh, it's not a bottleneck, those things. Um,
1: yeah, you want both companies to be coming into the space, but you don't want them to be slowed down by the state of core. Um, yeah, I totally agree.
0: So, Brian, the, the last thing we wanted to hit on with you is about your work on Epicenter, which is, you know, one of the OG crypto podcasts. Any of our listeners who haven't checked it out should go do so immediately. The, the most recent episode, when we're recording at least, was with Tim Luck the, the head of Okpar, and it's a, it's a really great one. So, Brian, you know, I have one uh, simple question for you. How how do we become as good podcasters as you? What do we do? What are we doing wrong? How do
2: we <laughs> how do we build your podcast empire that you have? I mean, you guys are doing great. I think so. <laughs> just keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. I well, um yeah. I think each podcast has a different style, right? Um. I I like i like you guys style i think at the epicenter maybe one thing that's i mean what's what's special about epicenter i think the biggest thing that's special about epicenter is just that we've been doing this for a really long time mm. uh so we are almost getting to episode 500 and we're basically wow. at, at this point we're like the longest running crypto podcast right there was a few podcasts around when we started but you know they kind of stopped so like we're like still running so i think it's the only one, you know, that has been running for such a long time. Um, I think also it's with Epicenter, you know, what we've done is have quite a few different hosts. And so we have different hosts and we also cover like a really broad range of topics, you know, from like Urbit to regulation to interviewing entrepreneurs. Like, you know, we, we try to kind of cover whatever we find most interesting in crypto. So I think that's, you know, that's a bit unique about it. And I think it's, it's definitely one thing that, is is like personally I find very enjoyable
1: yeah and have you found guests acquisition to really change now that crypto is like cool and huge versus when you started doing epicenter and crypto is like kind of fringe and like relatively small market cap have you noticed it's just like easier to get guests now that crypto's made it
2: well um I would say it's not changed like that much right uh Mm. It's. I it mean, it's. It was all. There was always, even when we started, right? There was enough going on that you. There was always a topic we wanted to do an episode on, right? So I think that was pretty simple. If anything, maybe it's become a little bit harder to get like some guests on because crypto's become so big and there's like so many different podcasts and so many different people. Whereas, yeah, I mean, long in time, Berlin, like,
1: twenty fourteen, Vitalik's not that big a deal yet, right? So. You could actually like hang out with him, meet him, and like potentially, you know, in the future, Rob Nisvick for, and you know, he just won't come on our pod anymore
2: <laughs> if ever yeah. makes it. well, Vitalik, Vitalik, actually, we've had him on like five times or something. So I think he's mm. he's, he's uh, I think he's been on, of the show. on often enough so that he's like he's happy to still come on. But uh, yeah. yeah, I mean,
0: you've you've just been doing the show for so long that I I it seems like it's sort of interesting historical artifact to, to trace the develop like so many developments in crypto. So I'm curious, has there been like a a favorite time for you to be hosting the show and meeting people? Like a you know, a golden era where you really just felt like things were moving in this really interesting way, or has it just been, you know, each
2: <laughs> each segment in the crypto cycle is its own joy? Yeah, I mean, I I think one time I remember that was a pretty interesting time for us was the bitcoin block size debate i don't know if any of you guys
1: oh yeah yeah there's a good
2: book on that. About that yeah it the was basically it was a huge discussion about bitcoin and the future of bitcoin and it seems like you know a lot of people will hear about it they're probably like what a weird discussion, but it was basically around you know, should the Bitcoin block size be like one megabyte and stay there, or should it be increased, or should you know to what should it be increased? so this was a huge, huge controversy. It was definitely the biggest topic in crypto for a while and uh and we just did a lot of podcasts about this had had on like different people from the different sides and uh, and you know, it was super controversial, so you know you'd have like huge reddit discussions about yeah what people said. And so that was definitely like an intense time and a pretty interesting time for and us. And do you
1: think they got it right with the small block size?
2: I mean, I was personally in favor of like increasing the block size. So, and, mm. and the arguments against it didn't make like too much sense to me. Um, in retrospect, I don't know, I'm not sure. It's, it's kind of a difficult one, right? Because I, I also see the advantages more uh, of Bitcoin just being this sort of unchangeable thing, um, because I do think that it, like it's so hard to change anything in Bitcoin that it's extremely resilient to any kind of you know government trying to do you know make protocol changes in Bitcoin. I think there's like no chance of that. Right. So and and I think if if there had if there was more of a process of hey we can upgrade this protocol, I think there would be more of a, a maybe a little bit more of a risk of that so I, I think that is an argument um i think the technical arguments that people made against increasing their block size really did not make sense to me and they still don't um but yeah so I'm i'm not sure actually if if it was the right thing or not still what's what's even the point of
0: having a podcast if they're not going to listen to you about your block size arguments you know has gotta, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, um, I'm curious. You know, in your ye- years of hosting this show, uh, and you've talked to so many, you know, brilliant, interesting people. Has there ever been someone who, you know, are there particular guests that stand out uh, as people? Maybe that like you were in awe of, or, or especially just blown away by. Obviously, you've, you've had Vitalik on a few times, but I, I always enjoy when I'm watching interview shows. Every once in a while, you see someone who's you know, interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people and you still see them, like, someone will catch them by surprise. Someone will really impress them. And that's always a really special moment. Has anyone stuck out that way for you?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, the, there's definitely the one podcast that comes to mind first is we had CZ from Binance on in, like, mm-hmm. 2018, I think. Oh, wow. It was, like, Binance, or maybe it was 2019. I don't know. Binance was, like, maybe nine months old at the time. And it was already the largest crypto exchange in the world, right? So they had, it, it's just the craziest entrepreneurial story there is pretty much. I think there was never a company that reached this kind of size in that short of a time. And, uh, and he was just, I, I think at the time, you know, a lot of people would be very sort of I don't you know, guarded. Maybe just like PR people, they're like cautious of what they're saying. But he was just not like that at all. He was just like really saying exactly uh, how they did it and his thinking behind it. And this was very fascinating. Yeah, I want to I, go I back mean, and I listen to that one. It, yeah, it, we'll make sure I, to link to it in yeah. the show notes. Yeah, it's it's just like one episode, and it's it's. I think it's really an episode, uh, like sort of to see. Him as an entrepreneur and how he thinks. and it's it's I, one I think one of the only podcasts that you know I we re- listened to like maybe twice or something. Uh, <laughs> so that's a uh, it's very interesting and I mean huge huge respect for what the guy has done, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it just seems like such a cool opportunity to
0: you know, I've enjoyed so much meeting people and getting to talk to people over the you know short life of this podcast. Um, it's, it's been a real pleasure and to be doing it as long as, as you have, it just seems like what a fun, interesting way to you know experience living history, getting to touch in with these, these figures and people who are, who are shaping the industry. So it's something I really ad- admire about Epicenter and, um, the way that you've handled it. So, and, uh, one reason we wanted to, to have you on is to, you know, to tap that, that wealth of knowledge. Well, that seems like a really great place to to wrap up this conversation. Thank you so much for chatting with us. Just totally fascinating and what a wealth of knowledge to have at our disposal so thank you uh,
2: thank you again for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to to have been on uh, yeah, and thanks so much for the work you guys are doing. It's, I think it's really important, and really cool
0: yeah, and uh, we'll make sure to link out to to epicenter and if if there is possibly a listener of ours who hasn't checked it out before, you you got to go do that right now. So thanks again. And uh, we'll catch everyone next time on The Network Age. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to the latest episode of The Network Age. If you like what you heard, we'd really appreciate it if you could go leave us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice, in particular, Apple Podcasts, where some some listeners just like you have left other five-star reviews. If you lead one, leave one, we'll read it on the pod, and here's a couple to help inspire you. We have from Ailsworth5050, five stars, balanced and forward-thinking, thoughtful, <laughs> intelligent discussion with a diverse selection of guests and topics without glossing over any of the nuance or being afraid to push back. Also notable for bringing on a lot of non-US-based perspectives that you don't hear in other pods thank you ailsworth5050 for that review i couldn't agree with it more myself and next we have navnek walpun if you're reading this you're heading in the right direction this is an excellent podcast that goes balls deep into urbit, crypto theory and general network age tomfoolery the hosts and guests are high quality i learn something new from every episode thank you navnek walpun for that kind review I learned something from reading your review, and that's just just how balls deep we get into everything. <laughs> can, else. We say, can
1: we say balls deep on this podcast? So, is this a we can, fairly, can talk about shirt. balls.
0: As, you're producing now, so I guess you can. You, <laughs> you have the power to censor anything anything you want. No, I'm, so, I'm keeping
1: balls deep in, fellas. Yeah,
0: uh, you. Heard, so you heard it here from Novnek. The Network Age is the place for urban balls, and if you and if you like that, please leave us a five star review. So thank you again, and we'll catch you next time.